Hello and welcome. It's On Mike with Jordan Rich, and I often get a chance to talk with colleagues in the industry, radio, TV, podcasting. Well, here's a guy who, like me, is in his 50th year as a radio and television personality. Oy vey, are we that old. His name is Mike Morin, and he is a New England favorite, particularly in New Hampshire, where he's been king of the Radio Hill for a long time, and every time he retires, they keep bringing him back. Mike is also a fine writer. He began his writing career back in the early 2000s and still produces a humor column every other Tuesday for the Nashua Telegraph. He's a contributor to New Hampshire Magazine, has been published in the Boston Globe, and in the Chicken Soup for the Soul series of books. His first big book was Fifty Shades of Radio, True Stories of a Morning Radio Guy, Being Wired, Tired, and Fired. He also wrote a book I love on TV's golden age of candlepin bowling. And if you don't know what candlepin bowling is, stick around. He's working on a new book about a classic New England diner. And I should add that Mike and I have had the chance to work together on radio for the last few years. He's a frequent guest in my Connoisseur's Corner segment on WBZ. Mike is also a foodie of the first order. So why don't you pull up a pair of headphones, or as we say in the biz, grab your cans and listen into conversation with a terrific chap as we invite Mike Morin to join us on Mike. Mikey Morin, great to have you on board, and I note that you're from Detroit, a great radio town. Was that what sort of lured you into this crazy business? It totally is. It was radio station WXYZ, and it was a morning guy by the name of Fred Wolf. And the reason I found it so intriguing at 11 years old is prior to that, I'd never really heard much of radio. But I changed schools, which required my parents to drive me since I couldn't take a bus anymore. So in that, say, 15 minutes every morning on the way to school, I discovered how much fun people were having doing a job. And I said, i got to do this someday. So from 11 years all the way to now, it's, it's kind of been a dream job for me. WXYZ, home of the Lone Ranger, if I'm not mistaken. You are absolutely correct about that. Back in the, I want to say, 30s and 40s, the Lone Ranger came out of the studios of WXYZ. You're right. How about that? So you were listening to jocks and morning guys, and uh, you said to yourself, "I that sounds like fun. I'd like to try that, maybe. Yeah, that that's exactly it. it I, and I couldn't really put my finger on it, and because I was not a shy person, I thought, well, maybe I can do this, have some fun, and call some attention to myself. You know how that is, right? Absolutely. And <laughs> everyone has a unique approach to starting the career, and uh, you've written about it in Fifty Shades of Radio and other great writings. But what was your first experience in a radio station itself? Wow, in a real radio station? Mm-hmm. I would say it was probably at the WDET, which is now the National Public Radio flagship station for Michigan. And uh, a friend of mine had a teacher in school who worked there part-time, and so I do remember going up, I was probably 16 or 17, and seeing the massive 12-inch reels of tape, or 10 or whatever they are, that you don't even, people you know, under about 40 have no idea what that is. Mm. But it, it just kind of cemented the, uh, the thought, the aspiration that this is, what I want to do. And uh, so I guess that would have been at WDET in Detroit. Mine was a little station in Taunton, Massachusetts. 
the local grocer, he worked in the meat department, did a show on weekends, and he invited me and my folks to come down, and I sat there and, and was enthralled to watch this guy spin records for an afternoon, and that was it. I was, co- wow. I was hooked. How at, old were you at oh, that time? Oh, 10, 11. <laughs> so it bit you early like it did me as well. Absolutely. Now, your career, Mike, has taken you in, into different markets, and we're thrilled that you're here in New England, of course, but you went uh, for a while to, what, Ohio, Toledo, is that right? I did. And by the way, I'm a little bit jealous because I love the fact that you've been able to pretty much, you know, grow up and become well known in your hometown, which wasn't the case for me, even though I did work in Detroit for a little bit. But once I was out of college and needed a full time job, I went to Toledo, Ohio for, I guess, close to eight years. And it was great because I got to do full time radio on a fairly prominent radio station. And that led to doing television weather. And I also wrote a um, what's called a prep sheet or a little uh, thing that you send out to DJs, give them some ideas of what to talk about. So it was the beginning of, I guess, the blossoming of my career. But there was a lot more to come after Toledo. Mm. Now, you said weather. I also did weather on the radio. It, it seems like a lot of us of a certain age were involved in the meteorological arts. Tell me about your weather days as a weatherman. Well, it goes back to uh, Detroit. Another one of my loves in broadcasting was a TV weatherman by the name of Sonny Elliott on Channel 4 in Detroit, WWJ. And I was fascinated since I was a little kid, even before I knew about radio, just watching him and loving weather. And I still, to this day, maintain my love of weather. And I was very lucky that for about a year I got to do weekend weather on Channel 11, WTOL, in Toledo, where I got to you know, point to maps and look off screen at myself and the green screen and the whole deal. It was a blast. However, that ended when I moved out of town, away from the area, to Washington, D.C. But, you know, I would I would consider doing it again if I was, you know, 20 yeah. years younger. Well, one of the things about doing TV weather uh, back then and now, I guess, is the fact that you're pointing to something that generally isn't there. Or in those days, uh, I don't want to date you too much, but in those days, was, was there any digital graphic way to sort of show a storm system coming through, or did you have to actually point to the storm system? <laughs> um, yeah, I would step out in the back and say, look up there, folks, that looks like a vortex, an F2 coming down now. <laughs> uh, actually, it was sort of the transition. This was 1983, 82, that I was doing weather, mm-hmm. and we actually at that time were using mostly, you know, props. Uh, in other words, we had a, a map that was painted onto a board, and then it was. I had these little magnetic H's and L's oh, yes, yes. and stuff like that, that that I would have to set up based on a, a map that I got from uh, some service somewhere that I, that I think was out of Westboro, Massachusetts, now that I think of it. But there were times when I would be pointing off-screen, looking at a monitor, when there would be, say, uh, a satellite map or a radar map or something like that. So it was sort of a combination of what it was then and what it is today. Yeah, you have to understand depth perception and where things yeah. are to the left and to the right. That's kind of an interesting thing. Um, and one more thing about weather. What what I gleaned from it, besides learning a lot about the terminology and how the weather is forecast, is geography, local geography. You, you kind of have to know where towns are on the map when you're doing weather. It's funny that you would say that because the uh, the fellow that uh, preceded me was also you know a part time guy. He was a full time radio uh, guy in Detroit, but he would drive down on weekends to work in Toledo. 
And he would, uh, again, this was uh, an actual physical board with a map of the U.S., and in the corner of all the states he would have, like, like IA for Iowa or MIC for, or MN for Minnesota, so that he could glance down without anybody knowing that he was cheating. He did, he did not know his states, but ever since the fourth grade, I was a geography geek, and so I, I knew them all backside, upside, and every which way but loose. Yeah, there is a certain amount of geekdom that comes in handy when you do radio, <laughs> whether, right. whether it be uh, trivia, movies, sports, uh, pop culture. You, you sort of have to have your finger on that crazy pulse of stuff. <laughs> Very true. Now, now let's continue. I just want to take us chronologically through Mike Morin's uh, really impressive career. Now, you went to Washington, D.C. That's an interesting market because it's it's so focused from the national scene outward. Uh, what was your experience in Washington? It was pretty interesting, probably the most unusual job I've ever had. When I was in Toledo, it, it became apparent that I was the midday host, that I was not going to be getting a morning show anytime soon, and I wanted a more expressive, uh, I guess, platform or stage, and morning radio is generally that. So there was an ad in one of our trade publications that there was a new comedy station going on the air, yes, all comedy, uh, in Washington, D.C. Do we see the irony here? So they, uh, they, they cast a wide net. They uh, got about 350 uh, people that were interested in the job, and I was one of five that was selected to do it. Now, I, I was doing afternoon drive radio, which isn't, you know, exactly morning drive, but because it was sort of an unknown format dealing with just comedy records, I could have a blast and pretty much do whatever I want. This place was amazing. It probably had five to 10,000 comedy albums. This is 1983. It was put on the air by a guy who for probably 15 years had dreamed of starting an all-comedy station, and he finally did it. And it was, it was pretty weird. The first day we went on the air, it was uh, a lot of media coverage, Wall Street Journal, Rolling Stone Magazine, uh, uh, CNN. I remember I was on the CNN headline news uh, just because they were in. And it was so nerve-wracking. First of all, new city, new format, new control board, and then you got all these uh, cameras in your face. It was, it was a pretty scary day, but pretty exhilarating. I said, if I can survive this, mm. I can someday end up in New Hampshire. How long did that were run? How long did that format last? Um, I don't know exactly. After about a year, we were all given pay cuts. Sad to say, and I don't really want to uh, diminish the, the owner, but he, he had some, some addiction issues, let's uh, put it that way, yeah. and never really monetized it the way that he easily could have with the, the huge startup and all the publicity that he got. It was an AM station in the suburbs, so it didn't have a great WBZ-type signal, but then again, who does? Mm -hmm. And so that was working against it. So after just about a year, uh, I did leave because I said, I'm not going to go down with this ship. I'm going to find something else. I'm going to take advantage of all the free publicity I've gotten in in the local trades of the broadcasting business. And then we'll talk about where you ended up, and you've become a fixture. You're you're a hometown hero. People love you up in New Hampshire and throughout New England. But, Mike, uh, comedy, uh, let's talk a little bit about that, because in 1983, if you're playing comedy records, even then you're you're dealing with stuff that might be, to some people, to, uh, to very sensitive people, a, a little bit dicey. Was there an issue with what the content was like back then? Yes and no. Somehow, the uh, the owners of the station, and, and remember, we're in the backyard of the FCC out of Washington, D.C., <laughs> so you can't play the seven dirty words that George Carlin says you can't play on radio, or can you? Yes. And yes, we did. 
we were uh, allowed to play what's called unexpurgated comedy between 10 p.m. and 4 a.m. So everything flew. There was no problem. Now, occasionally, because there were so many albums and you couldn't possibly listen to every comedy routine before you did your show because you'd go from you know four to eight hours, occasionally a bad word slipped in. I think people understood that, and unless you were being very gratuitous about it, uh, there, there was never any problems. And along those lines, I've had four times the uh, the F-bomb was dropped on my show, hmm. and not one call or complaint about it. So I think people are very tolerant as long as they know you're not really you're trying to rub it in their face. Yeah, and if you don't bring attention to something that goes wrong on the air, you're a whole lot better off. It's, it's when people... Uh, Rookies make this mistake. Oh, I made a big boo-boo. I shouldn't have let that go over. And people say, what did he do? And then all hell breaks. Well, pardon me, heck breaks loose. Uh, <laughs> one more question about or comment from you about the humor, because you're a very funny guy, and you've, you've always loved to laugh and make people laugh. Were, were there influences on you because you'd done it so well and without offending people for the most part, you do it out of joy and love? Were there influences from the comedy world on you, Mike? Hmm. That's a really good question. I, I think I really loved Johnny Carson. I would watch his show and think, yeah, I'd like to be sitting in that chair someday, but doggone that Jay Leno, he beat me to it. <laughs> I'm not sure that I really would have the, the chops to do it. But I would say that Johnny Carson, just off the top of my head, was probably the one comedian that I admired, not only because he was very funny and had wonderful, impeccable timing, but because he also was a good interviewer and he knew how to work with people. And much as, as you are yourself, you know the right things to say to people to, to get the best out of them. And, and that is kind of the key to what we do, Jordan, don't you think? I, I do, Mike. And just a note on Carson, um, I think his his grace and amazing talents really shown when he had what he called civilians, you know, ordinary people come in, kids, uh, crazy animal trainers, whatever, he would just work those interviews so beautifully. And I think that was the the master at his craft. I but, agree. Uh, g- good, good uh, point to bring up Carson because he is a model for those of us of a certain age. So let's talk about uh, the, the most recent, which has been a big chunk of your career, spending it in New England. You, you did do a stint in Boston at a big rocker back in the, was it the 90s? Actually, it was 1984 and 5 for okay. 13 months at WZOU, which is now Jammin 94.5. It was actually called The Zoo, and its call letters spell out zoo, sort of. Yeah, WZOU. <laughs> and they were kind of copying that from The Zoo Z100 in New York City. It was shot uh, with Scott Shannon uh, and Ross Britton. They were mm-hmm. kind of the big deal when, when I was in New York for my six months prior to coming to WZOU. So they kind of try to copy that idea, that format. Just anything goes, just like it's total mayhem and anarchy. And um, it didn't end so well, but it, it made for some great stories I, I, now that I look back. Mike, a, a question that I pose to guys I really respect in the industry who have come to Boston, not been born here and raised. Um, it's a different kind of uh, uh, market than any other, I think, because we know what we like. And if you're not one of us, it's going to be tough to break in. Uh, is oh. that your impression? <laughs> Even though I had about uh, a week to two living in Boston before, or actually in Maynard at the time, in Metro West, I had about a week or two to 
try to cram and learn as much of the pronunciations and everything as I could because they told us exactly that. You'll be spotted as, as a fraud. So my first uh, actual slip-up along those lines that I'm aware of is I was talking about traffic one morning, and, of course, we have the Southeast Expressway, but in the rest of the country, all the interstates are called expressways. Mm. So I was talking about, and I don't think it was the, you know, the Southeast Expressway. It might have been the Turnpike or it might have been, you know, something else, and, and I called it the Expressway. Oh, if you're on the Expressway this morning in, in Waltham, yeah, yeah, things are going to be slow. Well, the phone rang. You idiot, don't you know the Southeast <laughs> Expressway is the Expressway? Oops. So after that, I was really careful to make sure I would ask people if I wasn't sure. Well, you, you also uh, adapted uh, so much that you had to to become respected and uh, welcomed, and that it takes a lot of work and effort. Uh, remember Gene Burns, who was a great talk oh, show host? Sure, WRKO. He came to Boston, and I remember him talking on the air about studying, constantly studying the local history, the the names of streets, the way streets work. I mean, everything. And uh, and you have to do that. A real pro like yourself will do that. So uh, Boston was uh, short-lived, the city itself, but you found a home uh, shortly thereafter uh, ways north. Was it Kurt Gowdy Station, the first one you went to? It was, Jordan, yes. WCGY. It was also known as the Rock Garden. Mm-hmm. It was one of the last great family-owned radio stations. Um, in fact, it sat dormant just playing tapes for, for years and years. He got the license in the 70s and uh, never really did anything with it. But it was uh, maybe the most fun station I've been at because Kurt Gotti, when he hired Brad Krantz, who is now in North Carolina, and myself, after we got tossed out of the zoo, thank you, Norman Nathan, for breaking the news to me the morning I was on the air. <laughs> so we, we went to work there, and Kurt Gotti is you know a legend. Anybody you know that's ever listen to a sports broadcast, know that he was the gold standard for so many years. So I can't believe that I'm sitting in the office with the guy who I listened to delivering newspapers in Detroit on my transistor radio. I'd listen to him do the World Series or some other big sporting event. And here I am sitting with Kurt Gowdy. I'm going to get to do mornings on his radio station. So he sits Brad and I down. He says, boys, the only thing I ask is do what you want but don't get me in trouble with the churches. <laughs> <laughs> so, duly noted, I think we can probably find enough other things to talk about than insulting God. Well, you we you had a long run with uh, Mr. Krantz. You guys did very well. What was the chemistry like in, at the very beginning? The, uh, the chemistry at the beginning uh, goes back to we were both at the, the all-comedy station in Washington, and I mentioned earlier that it was beginning mm-hmm. to circle the drain and not doing so well. So, uh, he came on after me, and, and we did what, as you know, is called a cross. You know, I was getting off, and he was coming on, and we would chat a little bit, and we found that we seemed to have a spark. So we started recording a bunch of these crossovers because we thought, maybe there's something we can get out of Washington. So we, we sent a sample tape to uh, Frank Maggot Associates, who at the time was also the consultant for the Today Show on NBC, and so they liked what they heard, and they called uh, WPIX in New York and said, I think these guys are different, and they're good, and they're fun. So uh, we got hired with no practical real-life experience as a team, just just trying a little sample, a little bit of an audition. And that was really, really difficult, and it didn't go well in New York. We got there, and the uh, the upper manager was... I don't know, they didn't understand what we were doing, and maybe we didn't know what we were doing. 
but we were doing what we were brought in to do, and uh, just one thing after another, we got knocked out. So uh, a fail there, and then on to WZOU in Boston after a year, 13 months. Uh, that ended not too beautifully. And then uh, they hired us at WCGY in Lawrence. And uh, after about four or five months, uh, Brad decided that he, um, you know, he, he just didn't really care for the whole thing. It was definitely a, a scaled on. It was a mom and pop station. It was a wasn't a big glamorous radio station like WZOU was on Stewart Street downtown. So he left and went to North Carolina where he picked up a radio job. So in all honesty, we probably worked about two years together mm. on the air. Um, but if things had worked out differently, I think we'd have had a really nice run in Boston. We just were not given a, enough of a chance. It was micromanaging and, you know, oh. no, no sour grapes here because it was a great experience. But it, it really could have been a lot more than it turned out to be. Well, when you look back, any of us look back on our careers, we realize steps or missteps or not being in a the right place at the right time or being in the right place at the right time. It all works out one way or another. And, sure. of course, New Hampshire... Uh, a terrific radio market because we're not that far away physically, and uh, those stations that beam into northern Massachusetts, northeastern Mass, uh, like WZID, which is a powerhouse station up there, um, you you really settled in and became um, part of the neighborhood, Mike. Yeah, that's that's a good way to put it, Jordan. Um, I pretty much just came in. Somebody said, hey, they need a little a fill-in for a couple of weeks on WZID in the afternoon. And I was, uh, I was unemployed and still living off the residuals of, uh, you know, the money they gave me when, when I got fired. So I said, yeah, I'll do it. I mean, why not? I have absolutely no intention of going to work in New Hampshire. Famous last word, mm-hmm. right? So I did work for uh, a couple weeks. Then the guy uh who was uh filling in before i filled in he didn't want it full time so they they offered it to me so i did afternoon drive for about five years and it was not nearly as interesting i felt like i was back in toledo where i didn't really get to be very expressive after having been at zou and cgy and the all comedy station i was just introducing records and being a pleasant person on the radio and i wanted more than that so uh, I, I want to get ahead of whatever you're going to ask me, but I, I did uh, take a radio station job at a smaller place, but it was mornings. It was WHOB B106 in Nashville, which is now Frank FM, and, and that's where I got to, again, be wild and crazy and, as one person called me, an anarchist. On the <laughs> you, an anarchist. That's, that's funny. Um, I, I'm thinking about mornings um, for our generation of radio people. And grew up in the 60s, 70s, 80s, and started working in the 80s, mornings were the preeminent position to have. You're absolutely right. I did them for years. You did them for years. It doesn't feel that way anymore, except for a few vaulted uh, uh, heavyweights. Do you agree that mornings have lost their luster in many cases? I think so, because there's just so much churn, so much turnover. I mean, you still have Maddie. And then who do you have, really? Most of the, the Boston morning shows are within the last 10 years, and some of those guys have had a, a nice run. But at WZID, I, I did leave that small station, B106. I guess I, I, I never finished the story when you asked me about becoming a part of the neighborhood. Mm-hmm. So I was asked back, and I had a really nice 12-year run. It was probably the most consistent part of my life and my career when I accepted the job. I set a goal of doing it for 10 years, and it ended up being 12. And very professional. 
the pay was pretty good for New Hampshire mm-hmm. uh, because the smaller the market, usually the smaller the paycheck. But that's okay. If you've got freedom and management that supports you and you can pay your bills and save a little bit, that's a good, that's a good life. And, and that's what I had at WZID, part of the community. I was getting asked out everywhere because we were the big kid in, yeah. in, in the whole state, really, wherever you could hear us. There were always events, fundraisers, um, you know, tons of things to do, grand openings. And I, I really took advantage of that because I like being out with people. And I, I, I sense that's the same with you. Oh, absolutely. And one of the words I wrote down is diversify. When I was in school, I was mentored by some great people who said, just don't put all your eggs in one basket. But I wanted to keep the basket radio related. So like you, I've done a lot of writing. I've done a lot of freelance. And let's talk about some of the work you've done, which is above and beyond the radio shows. And one of them, uh, talk about TV, you were a weatherman, but one of them, you actually wrote a a book about it and you really know it inside and out. That's Candlepin Bowling. You were the host of something called Candlepin Stars and Strikes, I guess. Was that what it was called? That's what it was on Channel 50, which no longer exists, and that's a story for another podcast sometime. <laughs> but I did that for uh, for eight years, and then the station was sold. The new owners uh, did not want to keep local bowling on the air because it was fairly expensive compared to the other programming that they could put on, but without the local appeal. So I got a call one morning from the general manager of WLVI. Uh, what was his name? Was it Tom Manzi, perhaps? Mm-hmm. And he says, uh, we know that your bowling show went off the air. Would you like to do it in Boston? I said, yeah, I can be there in 10 minutes, even though I was in New Hampshire at the time. So I uh, sat down, and um, they laid out what they wanted to do with it. And um, and I got to hook up with Frank Malico. We did it for one season, and then the station was taken over by Channel 7. And Channel 7 didn't really want to have that on, or I guess that was the decision. They decided it wasn't worth it. The ratings weren't quite as well they weren't nearly as good as the old channel five show that don gillis hosted for 38 years or pretty Mm. close to that so but it was very well produced i was very proud to be a part of it i felt like yeah this is the big time this is how it should be done so I, I spent nine years doing uh, a bowling show every week and loved every minute of it. And again, we're talking about can I've actually done another podcast on specifically on the Candlepin bowling thing. Susan Bregman, you know Susan. Yes, of course. Uh, I think you sent her to me, and she's great. She wrote the book on it. But uh, it, it's such a New England thing. Here you are, Mr. Detroit, uh, <laughs> who's learning all about Candlepin bowling along with soda, which we call tonic, everything else. Uh, <laughs> but, but I wrote Diversify because... Because uh, Mike is, is I'm going to talk about you as if you're not here, Mike is a very well-rounded dude who's not only a, a great broadcaster, but you're, you're, you've taken to writing, you've got some books out there, another one on the way, and TV. So, I mean, you, you've done what uh, I was taught to do, which is get out there and have some fun and do things that are related, but that also give you more, more of, a, of a full plate of, of activity. Yes, and it's interesting that, that you were sort of instructed or told or whatever to, to kind of do that. And that was never really on my radar when I started in radio, that that was just going to be it. But all these other opportunities present themselves, and anything can get boring after a while. So it's fun to reinvent yourself, challenge yourself. So I did television, which I, I, I seem to be a natural at, so that was not difficult. Uh, I always enjoyed writing because in early radio years, when maybe the first 10 years, part of the job, not only as a DJ, was to write commercials. Mm-hmm. 
And so I, I did that, and so I can write, and I've got a fairly good grasp of the English language. And so I thought, well, let's do some writing. So I've been a columnist for the National Telegraph since 2004, every other week, kind of a, a Dave Barry sort of take on life. And that led to um, several you know, magazine uh, stories that I've written uh, locally and, and nationally. And I said, I like this. I think I need to do a book. With, and they always say, write what you know. So I did the, the radio memoir, Fifty Shades of Radio. And I think uh, if there's ever another uh, publication of it, I need to alter the title. Fifty Shades of Radio, True Stories of a Morning Guy Being Wired, Tired, and Fired, and <laughs> Retired. <laughs> and coming back year after year after retiring. You're, you're the, um, who was it who retired? Jack Benny had his uh, almost retirement specials. He did about 10 of them. Uh, you seem to keep, as Al Pacino said in Godfather 3, they keep dragging me back in. <laughs> you keep coming you know, back so, for more. Uh, it's so funny. A number of people uh, said that. You may have been one of them when I posted that I was reentering the ranks of radio, which has happened twice to me now once after retiring. I retired from WZID in, in 2014. Then in 2019, uh, Frank FM decided they were going to put their, their stations uh, in a little package of four signals what I want to do the morning show. I said, mm. yeah. And by then, you feel like you ha you're in the driver's seat. You can sort of dictate, you know, the standards and, and stuff like that. And so they said, yes, 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 when can you start? So then COVID hit uh, about two-thirds of the way through my two-year contract, and they were kind of anxious for me to go away. So I said, hey, I'll, I'll leave early, but here's what needs to happen. And they were they were very good. They treated me fairly, and I don't have a bad thing to say about them. So then I sat home for a year, and then... WFEA, which is the AM sister station of WZID, said, hey, we need a talk show host a couple days a week for some of our advertisers and some of the things we do. Would you come in, say, three days a week and, and, and do this and run interviews? And I said, yeah, why not? So, yes, I keep getting dragged back. Uh, but the nice thing is that they're calling me, and I feel like one of the most important things that you have in this business is your reputation. Mm. And I always tell kids when I talk at colleges or high schools that you need to be, first of all, the hardest working person at your radio station uh, because they're not going to throw you out for that. And you need to keep your mouth shut and do not get involved with politics or gossip. And, and I guess I'm living proof that that kind of works out. You are absolutely a mentor to so many. And I, I try to live my life. I try to live my life in the same general uh, direction because burning the bridge on your way out. You've told us stories today, Mike, about stations folding, about formats changing. None of it's your fault. So if you go bitter into the wind, uh, into the dark night, and just start bad-mouthing people, it's not going to help your situation. Nice guys do finish first, as far as I'm concerned, in this business. Uh, it's It sounds like a cliche, and it is, but it's true. Um, just a couple of other quick things. Podcasting. Uh, I love the name of your podcast. A guy walks into a podcast. I love that. <laughs> and and isn't it cool, and I, I'm going to wax poetic here and I get your take, that here we are, uh, in in our case, your case and mine, 40, 50 years after we started, we're really doing the the, the basics with podcasts. We're, we're getting back to what radio was so phenomenal about and for, the magic of conversation and the magic of the imagination. Absolutely right. And we're doing it on our terms. We get to pick the topic. People can listen to it any time. And, uh, yeah, can't always pay the bills quite as reliably, uh, although I can't speak for your podcast because I know uh, a lot of people uh, love it and listen to it. 
you, you just have to um, take what you are passionate about and and find some really good guests. I mean, you know what that's all about because you know you have me on today. So I mean, thank you very well, much for, for you, that. You have some outstanding guests that I, I just the governor of New Hampshire, Sununu. I saw uh, Melissa Rivers, Joan's daughter. I mean, you've got some good ones. Yeah, you know, let's be honest. Let's, let's tell people what happens. A lot of times, <clears throat> excuse me, there are people that are promoting new shows or books or whatever, mm-hmm. and, and they're looking to to get some exposure for it. But it also gives you an opportunity to make it sound like it's you're the only person that's interviewing them, even though they might be on a cross-country tour. They might be doing five interviews a day. But if you do it right, it sounds like, you know, you're the only person that's talking to them, and they know you, you establish a nice rapport, and people think, wow, I wonder if they hang out together. I mean, I always <laughs> like when, when people ask me, you know, if I had somebody famous on, and I've had, you know, sitting presidents all the way down to the butcher down the street, and you, you just say, look, you make friends with them, you, you uh, share a couple minutes before you put the mic on so they trust you, you do your homework, as you clearly have today, and it, it makes them respect you and paint you as a professional that you really care about your right. job and that you're going to care enough for them to help them promote whatever it is. Well, we're calling people who join us guests. And if you treat a guest rudely or if you're not uh, attentive to the guest, uh, they won't be a welcome guest anymore. They won't want to be your guest. So I think you're absolutely right. Hey, one more quick thing. Uh, in the last year, uh, because we can and why not, uh, I called up. Mikey here, and I said, I didn't realize you were such a foodie, and you really are, and you've won awards, and you bake, and all kinds of stuff. So uh, tell the audience here, uh, many of whom know me, but tell the audience what we've been up to the last year or so. Well, you've invited me very kindly to um, every so often join you over the course of a weekend or two each month to talk about food with the Connoisseur's Corner that, of course, is heard on WBZ uh, on the weekends, and it gave me a chance to I guess inject a little bit of personality into some of the things that bring me happiness when I am in the kitchen. And I'm finding out that it's really more the stories than it is the actual recipes that make that show so endearing. And I I love listening uh, on weekends when you have a a wide variety of guests on. So I'm very grateful uh, that you gave me a bit of a food platform, even though I do a fair amount of food stuff here in New Hampshire. (laughs) Give me a chance to talk to a few more people with... uh, a great radio host such as yourself. Well, so thank you for that. You it's have fun. been a welcome addition, and I'll tell you, there's so much that people can find out about you at MikeMorinMedia.com. And obviously, you're into alliteration, but that's okay. Uh, <laughs> MikeMorinMedia.com, and your Facebook page has all kinds of cool stuff. Mike Morin on Facebook. Um, I think you're the greatest. I'm so glad we're friends and connected. And uh, not connected in person because of what's going on, but we will get together and, and uh, share war stories at some point over a cup of, cup of joe. And I need to bring you some more chocolate infinity cookies. Oh. Unless your teeth fell out after the last batch. My wife, you scored so many points for me with those chocolate <laughs> infinity cookies. I gotta tell you. Hey, Mike, it's a pleasure, and I, I wish you and your lovely bride and your family all the best. And keep doing what you're doing, man. We need pioneers like you out there. Jordan, thank you so much. I've admired you from afar and driving late at night when you were doing the all-night show on a regular basis uh, after doing a, a wedding or some other gig, and I'd make sure that I, I had you turned on. So you've, you've been in my life as well, and, and I'm happy to share our common uh, good in radio together. Thank you for having me. Mike Morin, a true radio professional and a great writer. Look for his new book on that diner coming out in the summer, and check out other releases by Mike Morin at Amazon.com. 
Thanks, as always, to Dan Tebow of Fast Twitch Media, to Ken Carberry and everyone at Chart Productions, the team producing the podcast. And my thanks to you for not only listening, but rating and reviewing this podcast. That means a lot. Find out more at jordanrich.com. And until next time, as always, be well so you can do good. Take care. <laughs>